If you have your Bible, join me in 1 John 1, 1 John 1 this evening. 1 John chapter 1, I can remember my pastor growing up saying often, when someone comes to a place in which they have trusted Christ as their Savior, one of the first books of the Bible that they should get into and begin to read is 1 John. And when you begin to look at and study 1 John, you see so many wonderful truths. Now, some of 1 John actually builds on what we looked at last week there in Peter. It builds on the fact that we said, hey, can you be saved and not know it? We talked a little bit about the difference between assurance and eternal security. When you come to 1 John, you actually see a little bit of that building on top of the same principle we looked at last week. Though that will not be our focus tonight, it is certainly included here. I want you to begin with me in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the goal here is for you to have fellowship with one another as believers, with the Father, with Jesus Christ. Verse 4. And these things... Write we unto you that your joy may be full. If you stop right there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, that verse should in and of itself in so many ways define the way we come to Scripture. When we come to the Bible and we begin to read, and as we're going to continue here, as we begin to read, as we begin to study the Bible, we should come with the mindset that when I come to Scripture, the purpose of Scripture is that my joy may be full. Period. Oftentimes, those that are critics of Christianity have become critics of Christianity because of those that are Christians who have changed the way that others should look at Scripture. Part of that has to do with human nature. Part of that has to do with the sinfulness of the world, as we're going to look at, versus the truths of Scripture. But the reality is, Jesus came, and it was glad tidings, it was good news. And in His coming, and in our walk with Him, there is an aspect of our life that now has a fullness of joy that is nowhere else to be found. So when I come to Scripture, even when I come and I look, especially here at 1 John, the purpose, what he's trying to communicate is, look, if in your life you want fullness of joy, this is how you get it. And if you come at this the wrong way, or if you live on the other side of these principles, that fullness of joy is gone. But if you want that fullness of joy, here's where you find it. Here's where it's at. Here's how you get it. And then he continues on. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. All right, so the first thing I want us to see this evening is light and darkness don't live together. Light and darkness don't live together. When you bring light into a dark place, the darkness is expelled. The volume of the light 
determines how much darkness is expelled by the light. So that if you came into an auditorium this side and there was one bulb on in here, there would still be a lot of darkness because there is a little bit of light. But when you put a lot of light, all of the darkness goes away. In our house, when we moved in, we have two ceiling fans that are identical. One in our bedroom, one in our family room, and both of them have kind of a yellow brownish colored globe on them. You know what I'm talking about that it was over them? And then they have these silly candelabra bulbs. Why anybody ever made a light fixture with those, I will never understand. And then in these candelabra bulbs were about two watt yellow brown lights. You could see nothing. Now, that in and of itself is a problem. The fact that we have now lived in that house since March of last year and I had done nothing about this was more of a problem, okay? So I had gotten light bulbs, I pulled the thing down and go, oh, it's the wrong kind of fixture and it doesn't work. And the other night I was in Walmart and I was going through picking stuff up really quickly. When I say the other night, it's Friday night, okay? So this was like two days ago. So Friday night, I'm in there and I'm running through picking some stuff up for Christmas decorations and stuff and I go past the end of an aisle and right there, on the end of the aisles, if God had placed them there for me, were candelabra, daylight, 5,000K bulbs. But they were only 40 watt. I'm like, nah, I want brighter. But I grabbed a box anyway, because I'm like, just in case, I've got something. But it reminded me to actually go look. So I go to the light aisle, I go down there, and there are 60 watt. I'm like, you don't have 300? I'll take 60. So I get two boxes of 60 watt candelabra, 5,000K light bulbs. I'm telling you, I was so excited to get home. I didn't care what we were having for supper. I wasn't worried about anything else. I was so excited to put those silly light bulbs in. And I got home and we got done with everything. Man, I got up there and I put those light bulbs in. I'm like, all right, turn off all the lights. I took a picture of before and I took a picture of after because I wanted to see the difference. Man, you turn those lights on and especially in our bedroom, I'm like, I can tell the difference between blue socks and black socks. This is great. I could finally see again. Now, it wasn't quite bright enough, let's be honest, for my taste, but it, it was a lot better. When we have true light, the darkness just goes away and you see everything so much more clearly. The Lord's saying, look, I am the light. There is absolutely no darkness in me. Now, building upon what we looked at last week, can an individual be saved? Can an individual have trusted in Jesus Christ and not be producing the fruit? The answer to that is yes, that that can occur. And the example we saw there in Scripture was Lot. However, as you move forward and you look at this passage in context, as John's writing unto those that are believers, in God there is light. And if you're walking around in darkness, ungodliness, and you say that you have fellowship with him, you're lying. It's not true. It doesn't exist. You may be saved, but there is no fellowship because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light and darkness do not live together. But now, in context, because as you read through 1 John, if you take anything out of context, there are some verses that you go, wait, well, what that means is... And I have heard plenty of evangelists take some verses and 1 John completely out of context. Look, if you will, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, simple question. Based on verse 8, clearly written, are we going to sin? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. We will sin, period. End of argument. There's no arguing around this. 
we will sin. Continue verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, not only are we going to sin, we are going to sins. Okay, we're going to keep sinning, and there are going to be sins, and we are going to need to confess those sins. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It is clear that if for a second I believe that I am not a sinner, then the truth of God is not in me. So that in order to be saved, I have to recognize that I am a sinner, that I have to be saved from something. So that there is clearly taught in Scripture that I recognize, I understand that I am a sinner, that I have sinned, I will sin, and I have a need in my life to confess that sin. That sin goes on and on and on in my life. But, verse 1, chapter 2, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Okay, so we will sin, that part's clear and evident. But because we sin does not give me license to act that way. In other words, yes, I will sin, but we should not sin. It is not as if it is the goal of my life. Because I will doesn't mean that I should. One of the things that is most difficult as a pastor when it's involving counseling individuals is oftentimes when I'll sit down and I will counsel with someone about a particular interpersonal relationship or, or something in their life that they are trying to move in a direction that is more in accordance with Scripture. Nine times out of ten, at the end of our time together, I have to look at them and in honesty I challenge them and let them know a simple truth. When you leave here, it's going to get harder. In fact, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. It's just the nature of human relationships. It takes time, and it is so common, and it is so true. And I don't do it to ever discourage anybody, but I just want them to understand what's facing them. I know that I should not sin. I know that I'm going to but I shouldn't, and so that instantly creates this angst in me. And then, here's what happens, and you know this because it's so true for you too. You know you shouldn't sin, you know you're going to sin. And we tend towards one of two sides, and the fact that you're here tonight at a church like ours, you're probably on this side. But, but there's the other side that says, well, I know I'm going to sin, I know I shouldn't, but I'm not going to feel guilty about it, I'm just going to do it, and it's fine, and I'll just move on and keep going and keep going. And it's kind of the mindset of, I'm going to run, and when I fall, as long as I'm running fast enough, it doesn't matter, and I just get up and I just keep running, and I fall, and I run, and I fall, and I run, and I fall. The, the other side, which is the side most of us tend to be on, is we run and when we fall, we're ashamed of the fall. We knew we were going to do it already, but we're ashamed of the fall. Now, I'm not saying that's all wrong. It's just a reality. But the shame of the fall makes it so that I don't want to go to God for confession of that sin. And I don't want to go to God and get things right because I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed of myself. I want you to continue reading chapter 2, verse 1. If any man sin, okay, we know we're going to, we know we shouldn't, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
You know that verse. You've heard that verse before. But I want you to think about that verse for just a second. When I sin, it is not just the, the picture of the prodigal son. It is not that I run from God, I get involved in sinful things, I come back home when I come to myself, and the Father is looking a great way off, sees me, comes to me, and there is ready forgiveness available for that sin. That's absolutely true. That's not what the picture is here. The picture here is different. The picture here is I'm guilty, I have done wrong. And it's not just that the Father is willing to forgive me. That in and of itself is an unbelievably gracious act of a loving Heavenly Father. But look at the passage. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So here's the Father who's willing to forgive, but who's holy who recognizes our sinfulness and who does not at any level allow sinfulness to simply pass by. It must be judged. But when we come to the Father, I don't come in my own right. Jesus comes along beside me, and yes, we know that our sins are on him at the cross, but Jesus becomes my advocate. He argues on my behalf, as it were, in a court case. Jesus comes before the Father in my defense. It is not just that Jesus says, okay, well, I'm willing to cover your sins. I paid for that. He becomes the one who fights for me. In other words, there's help. There is help when we sin. It's not just that I can go and confess and get forgiveness. That's a great blessing. But I have Jesus Christ who comes along beside me, who helps argue for me. He helps bring me to the place where I get that forgiveness. He's on my side. When you look at legal proceedings, and you see all even now in Congress and things that are going on, and you begin to see the lawyers involved, and the picture here is without question, I am guilty. My attorney comes with me and he pleads on my behalf to the one who can set me free, the one who can forgive, the one who can take away the guilt. And he does all the work for me. And yet I still, I still, when I do wrong, feel guilty coming before God and seeking forgiveness. And I still hesitate when Jesus is going, look, I'll go with you. I will go with you to the Father. I will advocate on your behalf. I've already paid for it. That mindset does not make it so that I want to sin more because I've got somebody who's going to plead my case for me. It doesn't make me entitled. It doesn't make me spoiled or rotten. But when I truly come and I recognize what my advocate has done on my behalf, it makes me even more grateful. Continue reading. Verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him. So I come before God, I get forgiveness of these sins that have been in my life. My, my Savior advocates for me. I go into the presence of God, and now, back to verse 4, 
I do this so that my joy can be full. Verse 3, so I can have fellowship with the Son and with the Father. Now I come back to chapter 2, verse 3. And hereby do we know that we know Him. I am secure in my relationship and my salvation if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There is a reality here that we can say we know God, and we understand God, and we believe in God, and we don't understand him at all. In English, we really have one word for this. Other languages have two. Uh, French, they use two different words for know. One is to know factually. Uh, one is to know personally. So you can say, je sais, I know. Je connaissais, I understandingly know. And, and so there's two different words represented here. The idea here is that we can go and we can not just know God, but we know who he is and understand him. I come to a place to where I am in fellowship with him when I keep his commandments. If I don't keep his commandments, I don't understand him at all. It's why when you come to difficult places in life with individuals who have not walked with God, you can give them all of the cliched Bible lines, if you will. God's working this out. God has a purpose behind this. God's trying to do something. It may be that God's trying to draw. And that person does not get any of that because they don't understand God. But someone who is spiritual, who has walked with God, they can go through that same difficulty. And those phrases that we use mean so much more because they actually understand that that is how God works. If we keep his commandments, he saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. This is where we come and we understand. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. And a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him in you, because the darkness is past, the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Your sins have been forgiven. You have an advocate with the Father. So going back to the beginning, we look at this there again in verse 4 and say, He saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. Well, what's the opposite of that? Verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So all of this contrasts, and then it compared again in the following verses to darkness and light. Let me ask you, what does it mean to keep his commandments? In your mind, what does it mean to keep God's commandments? If you're honest, probably for most, the first thought that came to your mind is when you say, Pastor, we have to keep his commandments, the first thing that comes to your mind is there are things that I cannot do. Is that right? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not 
covet. Thou shalt not. So when I say keep his commandments, the first thing that comes to your mind is the things that I don't do. When Jesus was asked about his commandments, what was the first thing that came to his mind? The thing that he said was most important. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We very quickly come to what we shouldn't do instead of what we should do. Is someone righteous because of what they don't do or because of what they do do? Is someone righteous because of what they don't do or because of what they do? It's a great question. In fact, we'll be looking at this a little bit on Wednesday night, just a little plug there. Uh, but, but we'll be talking about this in more detail on Wednesday night. But, but do. And the truth is, for most in our circles, we live our life in what I don't do. That's not all bad. Is it clearly taught in Scripture the things we are not supposed to do? And the verses that followed, he that hateth his brother. Look, don't hate your brother. That's clear. Don't hate him, because if you hate him, then the love of the Father is not in you. So that's clear. That's something you're not supposed to do. So does Scripture teach us things that we are not supposed to do so that in turn our joy may be full? Absolutely. Does Scripture teach us things that we are supposed to do so that our joy may be full? Often we feel like you jump to one side or the other. But the truth is both are real. Doing what we should will keep us from doing what we shouldn't oftentimes. As I go through life, I recognize more and more that doing what I should takes care of the, the not doings. The spirit versus the law. Let me give you a couple examples just to get you thinking this evening. All right, you have kids. Have your kids ever said something that you go, where did you learn that word? And you assume instantly it was not from you, it was from someone else. Or they acted in a way and you go, whoa, we don't act like that. And we instantly recognize that there are words we do not want our kids to say. We might even use the phrase profanity. We don't want our kids speaking profanely. You hear your kid use an expletive, you jump all over them. But if you hear your kids speak unkindly, do you jump all over them? Because if they're speaking kindly, will this ever be a problem? If they're showing grace in the way that they speak, if they're showing forgiveness, if they're acting like someone who's in light, will the darkness come out? Well, look, we know there's sin, we know we shouldn't sin, but we do know we have an advocate. But in this process, there is clearly, you shouldn't do this, but if you're doing this, this takes care of itself. For me, now let's leave my kids out of it for a minute, for me, when I'm struggling here, it's not because of the here. It's because I'm not doing something I should be doing. If I get frustrated with someone and I speak unkindly to them, it's because I'm not showing the grace that I should be showing. It's because I'm not showing the love that I should be showing. It's because I'm not loving my brother, and instead 
I'm showing hatred in my tone, though it may not be completely in my heart. It's certainly in the way that I am speaking. So there, there are two sides here. And when I recognize that I need to be focused on what I should do and not as focused on what I should not do, though I cannot eliminate either one of these, the world and Christianity tries to jump to both sides of this. So that there are circles out there right now in Christianity that are very good at the doing of good things. But because they do good things, they have no concept in their mind that there is darkness that they should not be doing. There are others, this is more close to home here for us, that are good at saying, I should not do these things, and we're not good about doing some of the things that we should be doing. As John's writing here, he's saying, look, you want to know the Father? You want to have fellowship with the Father? Keep His commandments. And there are thou shalt commandments, and there are thou shalt not commandments. And to throw them away doesn't give you freedom. To throw them away robs you of fullness of joy. Doing right confirms our standing with God. It helps us in our fellowship and our relationship with Him. But I have to be willing to do what's right in order to have that fellowship with Him. I have to be willing to keep His commandments. I'm going to fail, and it's okay, because I've got an advocate who will go with me. I don't have to run, I don't have to flee, but I go before Him. Now look, there are three examples here in this passage that help us understand this. Join me back, if you will, in verse 14. And let's jump up a little bit further. Let's go verse 11. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. He doesn't even understand where he's at. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We recognize that we cannot love this world. You see, what you love makes all the difference. When your heart is so tied up in loving the world. And we're going to look specifically at these three sins that, that characterize most sins in just a second. When your heart is tied up in this world and your love is there, then you're completely missing the love of the Father. But when you love the Father, that takes care of so much else. That's why Jesus was so clear in his teaching. We have to be careful that we don't cultivate in our own hearts a love of the world. It's easy to do. It's natural to do. In fact, it takes a lot of effort and fight to fight against the love of the world. It's all around us. It is becoming more and more blended into Christianity so that there's not as much separation. But the reality is... 
when the world begins to be our love and our desire, the danger is so strong. I remember I was teaching in a Christian school, and there was a, a young man in the Christian school, and he just, and this was not, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so, he just had this love for pop culture and magazines, and he was always bringing these magazines and always talking about this celebrity and this celebrity and what this person was doing and what they're, and I'm just going, I don't get it. And, there, and, and he continued to just kind of foster this love of the, the secular world and all the pop culture and all that's going on out there. And I'm looking at it and go, but there's no fulfillment. And you watched as time passed. And I watched as other students kind of fell into this same trap. And to see now the evidence that the love of the Father is not in them. It doesn't mean that I look at those young people and say, well, they weren't saved. It doesn't mean I don't look at those young people and say that there's no hope. That, that's not it at all. I'm just saying by their life now, it is obvious that the love of God is not their priority at all. And so we have to be careful not to cultivate that, even in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, especially when it comes to our kids. Satan has a way of dealing with us and creating that love in areas that are common. You and I are not on a daily basis tempted by Satan. The love that we have of Satan or, or of evil things is not Satan coming and attacking us. You say, well, how do you know that? Because honestly, we're not that important. Satan's got bigger fish to fry and it's not us. Most temptation that takes place in life, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. You see, our sins result from common to man temptations because Satan has put the framework of the love of the world out there and it draws our heart and it tempts and pulls us away. And most of our sin is because of things that are very common. It's all around us. And it was that same type of temptation that Satan himself used on Jesus Christ. You see, he attacks Jesus with the lust of the flesh. He comes to him, and we see it here in verses 15, 16, 17. The lust of the flesh is that desire for the things that my body wants. We are threefold. We are body, soul, and spirit. And when it comes to the lust of the flesh, it is my body. It is the desire for the good, natural things that my body wants taken to an extreme. It can be anything from food. It can be drugs can fall into this, alcohol. It is something my body desires a relief from pain. I take drugs. The drugs then create a euphoric feeling, and I decide that I want that lust of the flesh more. This is where immorality falls into. All of these aspects are natural desires of the flesh that are taken to extremes. Satan comes to Jesus. I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Moments later, an angel feeds Jesus. The desire for food was not wrong. The timing and the means was wrong. Satan still comes to us through lust of the flesh to intoxicate, to draw. Lust of the eyes is the other principle taught here. Lust of the eyes has to do with my soul. Those, that emotional seat, what is pleasant to my eyes. These are material things, money, entertainment, things that bring me temporary pleasure and happiness. It is that desire that I seek after to satisfy the things that I see and that, that covetous nature inside of me. Again, Satan comes to Jesus. He brings him up to an exceedingly high place. And he says to him, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They weren't his to give. It never is. 
And then the pride of life is my spirit. It is to make one wise. This is where we want that praise, that recognition, that achievement. Each will fall into different areas in which your temptation is great, whether it's flesh, the lust of the eyes, or that pride of life. But all are common. Satan changes the way he brings those temptations in every generation. I believe that. But he uses that same area in every generation. This generation is faced with those same things, except it is so much more readily available than it was a generation or two ago. But we must recognize, at the end of all of this, there is light and there is darkness. And there are times in our life where we're going to fall into darkness. We're going to give in to one of these three types of temptations. But we shouldn't. But when we do, it's not as if God is against us at that moment. Jesus is our advocate. He's there pleading our case if we just come to him. And he helps us to get things right so we can return into fellowship and fullness of joy. He helps us to walk in the light, to get back to that path where we need to be so that we can continue in light, keeping his commandments, showing the love of the Father in us and through us. But it occurs when I recognize, God, what I love is so important. Here's the tricky thing about love. We like to think that when I really love something, I can never stop loving that something. And the truth is, that's a lie. I can't stop loving. And there are plenty of things in our lives that we loved that we don't care for anymore. There are plenty of things in our lives that we love that we've given up, we've walked away from. And to say that I love God, but I don't keep His commandments, I'm just deceiving myself. I don't really. But if I will cultivate that love, and I will walk in that love, and I will stay in the light, and I will keep that fellowship, and I will work at it, that love will continue to grow and grow and grow. For you and I, we come to a place to where we say, you know what, God, My love's not what it should be, but by your grace and with your help over time, I want it to become that. In any good relationship, love continues to grow. Don't let your love for the Lord wane. Continue to seek Him, because when you do, it's not a matter of what I can and can't do. It's a matter of what I get to do for His glory because that's where my joy is full. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6:37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? at hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning, 930 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service. 
and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.